Now today we are in week three of our series called Behind the Scenes. And as we get started, I want you to maybe process something with me. I wonder how many of you can think back to some of the bad advice that you have received in your life. I wonder how many of you can think back to some of the bad advice that you have received in life. I remember when I was a kid and we were getting ready to go to church, my mom would let us go play outside, but she would say, don't get dirty. And one time I was wearing white shorts. I don't know who wears white shorts, Um, but I was wearing some white shorts and I got like this streak of dirt on my shorts. I was so scared. I was playing with a friend. He said, don't worry, rub dirt on top of it and then wash it off. It'll come out. He was wrong. Okay, that was bad advice. When I was in high school at a wrestling tournament, the night before the wrestling tournament, I noticed that I had ringworm on my skin. And if you have ringworm, they won't let you wrestle. So my friend said, just put Clorox bleach on your skin. It will, cl- it will kill the ringworm. That is true, but it also killed a bunch of other healthy skin cells. That was bad advice. When I was getting married, just a few weeks before I was about to have our ceremony, I had uh, a pastor friend come up to me and said, Daniel, won't you come here? I want to give you some advice. He said, Daniel, marriage is like a phone call in the middle of the night. He says, you get a ring and then you wake up. Okay, that was bad. Get ring, a ring, and then you wake up. It wasn't good advice, so don't even remember it. But it was bad advice. And this is the truth is that all of us over the course of our life interact with people who over time or interact with different sources of information and we get bad advice. Some of it is bad dating advice, career advice, relationship advice. Sometimes it's bad parenting advice. And this is probably what most of us have learned at some point throughout the course of our life when we have gotten bad advice is that bad advice can ruin your life. Bad advice can ruin your life. And so actually, I want us to kind of let that stick in our heads this morning. And so on the count of three, let's say that all together. If you're viewing outside or online, feel free to say it along with us, okay? One, two, three. Bad advice can ruin your life. That was impressive. We're not going to do that again, but that was impressive for the first one. And you know how we have learned this? You know how we know that bad advice can ruin our life? It is because some of us have taken that advice, applied it to our life, and on the back end, we have realized that what they told us was true doesn't actually work. I wonder how many of you who are married have ever taken marriage advice from your single friend who can't stay in a relationship. <laughs> I wonder how many of you who are parents have ever taken parenting advice from someone who doesn't have children. I wonder how many of you have taken life advice from a 16-year-old YouTuber. Okay, right? All of us have. There ain't no judgment. Sometimes it sounds like it's good advice. But the truth is is that there is so much information. There are so many people in our world telling us how to live our best life. And the question is, how do we know what to do? Or how do we know if it's the right advice? And so today we're going to talk about what to do with bad advice so it doesn't ruin your life. What to do with bad advice so it doesn't ruin your life. And to do that, we're going to be in the Old Testament, which is also known as the Hebrew Bible, first half of the Bible. And we're going to be looking at Esther chapter 3. If you've been with us in the conversation over the last few weeks, we looked at Esther chapter 1, and we got a sense of who King Xerxes was, and we learned a little bit about his character based on the way that he treated his wife Vashti when he felt disrespected because she didn't want to parade herself around his friends at his party, and he was kind of ruthless to her. 
And then in chapter 2, we learned a lot about this girl named Esther who basically came from nothing, had nothing, but somewhere along the way, she was allowed to uh, increase her influence because she learned how to be good to people. She was humble and she treated people with loyalty in her life. And eventually she came and rose to a position of influence in a culture that wasn't even her own. If you've missed any of those conversations, I want to encourage you, you can go back to our YouTube channel. You can check those out. I think they would be helpful for some context as we dive into the conversation this morning. So this is where we are, Esther chapter 3, verse 1. It says, Sometime later, King Xerxes promoted Haman, son of Hamadatha, Hamadatha. I don't know how I was reading this before, but I guess it's harder to read it in public. Hamadatha, the Agite over all the other nobles, making him the most powerful official in the empire. All the king's officials would bow down before Haman to show him respect wherever he passed by, for so the king had commanded. But Mordecai refused to bow down or to show him respect. Have you ever seen uh, those old credit card commercials? I think it was a Visa commercial. But basically, you would have a customer calling uh, the customer service helpline, and the customer looked exactly like the employee that they were calling. And whenever they'd come to them with some kind of question or a problem that they were having, the employee was like, I totally get what you're saying. And the point of the commercial was to say, hey, we are just like you. We want what you want. When you look at Xerxes' life and his character, and as we begin to get a better understanding of who Haman was, you're going to see, we're all going to see, that they were almost the same person. They were very egotistical. They were very rash in their decision-making. And at the core of their character, they had a little semblance of evil. And so it's interesting, though, as we think about the fact that Xerxes and Haman were very similar in their personality type and their behavior, that Haman, uh, that Xerxes made Haman the most powerful official in the entire kingdom. So that's kind of an interesting thing to take note of. The second thing that is interesting to take note of is that Xerxes allowed for people to bow down and worship Haman. Now, if we understand uh, how egotistical Xerxes was, that would be unique because someone like that would never want anyone else to receive the glory that they felt like they should receive. But it's probably likely that Haman asked Xerxes to make this a requirement because people knew Haman's character. They knew that he was kind of a ruthless leader. And this was the beginning of the conflict in chapter 3. Because as the king sort of made it an edict, a command that everyone bow to Haman, we have Mordecai who was unwilling to bow to him. And we might ask the question, why? Why was Mordecai unwilling to do this? Some people think that it went against his, against his religious convictions and so he didn't want to bow down because it seemed as though it was an act of worship. But when we look at other passages and other parts of the Old Testament, it seems like it was more of a cultural requirement and so it wouldn't have been a conflict with his religious conviction. Some other people think that uh, Haman and Mordecai had this long running feud uh, in light of their cultures. Agagites had historical conflict with the Jews. So that's one position. Another thought is that in just a, a few passages earlier, we saw that Mordecai was also appointed as a high position in the palace. And so it seems like if Haman had taken over some of his responsibility, it's possible that there could have been some personal conflict between the two. But I think that as we begin to jump into the story a little bit more, it is most likely that Mordecai was unwilling to bow to Haman 
because he knew how evil Haman was. He knew his character. And I kind of think that like if you understand the Enneagram, it's like this ancient sort of personality test. I kind of think that uh, Mordecai was an eight, right? He could not stand injustice. There are some of us that can live in the gray area, but eights, when it comes to justice, are just black and white people. It's either right or it's wrong. And Mordecai said, as much as I want to publicly honor this person, I cannot. And so he didn't bow. And this was the beginning of the conflict. Look what it says in verse 5. It says, When Haman saw that Mordecai would not bow down or show him respect, it says he was filled with rage. He learned of Mordecai's nationality, so he decided it was not enough to lay hands on Mordecai alone. Instead, he looked for a way to destroy all the Jews throughout the entire empire of Xerxes. I can just say that if I were in a moment like this, in, in a moment of honest reflection for myself, I kind of understand the conflict, right? He didn't bow. He did this in front of everyone. Maybe Haman and Mordecai had like this personal beef, but when it came to like public displays of honor and respect, at least we can put that down. At least we, maybe we can keep it private, but he didn't do it. And so when this happened, it kind of blew up, bigger than probably Mordecai ever imagined. When I was living in South Africa, I lived alongside this missionary who was this amazing leader. He was this humble, kind, relatively soft-spoken person in his personality. But one day, these kids that he was helping were not listening to him. And uh, he was apparently, he had a bad night's sleep or something. I don't know. But he lost it on these kids. And I remember he like grabbed this stick and he started whipping the ground and all of us were a little bit scared. In my mind, that is the image that I have of what happened to Haman in this moment. He sees everybody bowing to him as he's walking along the street, showing him honor and respect. And he knew that he had some drama with Mordecai and he was hoping Mordecai wouldn't do anything publicly. But when he did, it incited rage into his heart that he would dishonor him in front of everyone else, his, his really fragile ego. And what we realize in this moment is that Haman is actually worse than Xerxes. Because when Xerxes was disrespected by his wife Vashti, he sent her away. But as Haman is being disrespected by Mordecai, he's wanting to annihilate an entire population of people. Verse 8. It says, Then Haman approached King Xerxes and said, There's a certain race of people scattered throughout the provinces, of your empire who keep to themselves separate from everyone else. Their laws are different from those of any other people and they refuse to obey the laws of the king. So it is not in the king's interest to let them live. Haman didn't have the power alone to annihilate these people. So he had to leverage his relationship and his position with the king to do it. But all he had to do was completely lie about this entire group of people. And I wonder how many of us have ever had to stretch the truth to make a point. If you have, you have probably learned that lying will never get you what you want. It may get you what you need in a moment, but what it does over time is it begins to destroy your character. And it's interesting that it seems like Haman did not flinch in this moment. Because the reality is that this has probably been a pattern in his life which is why he has the testimony that he does and and the, the credibility that he does. But I think that the real problem so far in this scenario 
is what this tells us about King Xerxes. Look at what it says in verse 12. It says, so on April 17th, the king's secretaries were summoned, and a decree was written exactly as Haman dictated. Dispatches were sent by swift messengers into all the provinces of the empire, giving the order that all Jews, young and old, including women and children, must be killed, slaughtered, and annihilated on a single day. Then the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa fell into confusion. Bad advice can ruin your life. Xerxes' life is literally the story of a king who ruined lives because of bad advice. He ruined his marriage because of bad advice. He ruined his kingdom because of unfair policy toward women. He struggled in battle because of bad advice. And you might think that at this point in his life, And in his career, he would have learned his lesson, but he hasn't. And I think that this sort of speaks to a bigger truth for all of us, that just because you get older doesn't necessarily mean you get wiser. Just because you have lived life doesn't mean that you are learning from life. And when we look at the story of Xerxes, when he should have figured out this pattern in his life, he was about to make the worst mistake of all. He was about to commit mass genocide in his kingdom. And I realize that for many of us, our story may not be his story, but there are some of us that have shown up today in this room or outside or viewing online or watching this video later on YouTube where we are living in the wake of bad advice. Our marriage is struggling or over. Our self-image is struggling. Our relationship with our children is struggling. Our hearts, we literally walk around with heavy hearts wherever we go because many of us are still living under the weight of someone else's bad advice in our life. And when you look at the life of Xerxes, he is living under one weight of bad decision after another. And the question that if we have experienced like this cycle and this pattern of weightedness in our own life, And we begin to notice that a lot of the weight that we carry is a result of advice that we have followed. And the question for us is how does bad advice continue to have influence over us? I think we can learn a lot from the pattern of King Xerxes. Number one, I think that he lacked character. He did not have like this internal base of values that pushed back against bad advice. He didn't have the character to even do what was right when he thought something was wrong. And I think that is probably true of many of us when we are faced with a decision to either follow bad advice or do what is right. Some of us have lacked the character at certain seasons of life to do the right thing when we've encountered bad advice. Number two, I think that Xerxes lacked wise counsel in his life. Proverbs chapter 13, verse 20 says, Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. I love the quote where it says, Show me your friends and I'll show you your future. Because so much of the decisions that we make in our life are a reflection of the people that we are partnered with in life. And part of why there was a sort of pattern, a cyclical pattern in Xerxes' life over and over again of making bad decisions is because he hung around with foolish people. Oftentimes, if we're trying to make a change in our lives, 
part of the process of changing our life and changing our patterns has to do with changing certain relationships in our life, removing certain people from the table of influence that we have. I remember when I was in college trying to follow Jesus, and you can imagine being in college, there are so many opportunities to do whatever you wanted. Not that my parents were that strict in high school, so it wasn't that different. (laughs) But I'm so thankful that I had a group of friends who were also trying to follow Jesus because it helped me in hard moments to make good decisions. Number three, Xerxes had no basis for good. He didn't have a moral compass as a foundation for his decision making. And when you don't have like this foundation for what is good and what is right and what is true, it is hard for you to know when you're hearing bad advice. And I think that like when we look at our culture and we look at some of the places that we get our information from, what is true is that many of us and many people in our culture don't have a baseline for what is right and what is true and what is good. Because the baseline for many people is Fox News. All right, don't get offended. For many people, the baseline is CNN. For many people, our baseline for what is good is our YouTube people that we follow, YouTube influencers, I guess is what the kids are calling them, (laughs) or our friends' commentary. But part of why we struggle to know what, what is good and what is true is because we don't have a foundation for those things. But look at what it says in Psalm chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. It says, Oh, the joys of those who do not follow the advice of the wicked, but they delight in the law of the Lord, meditating on it day and night. How good is life when we are not following the advice of foolish people? Instead, we have delighted ourselves in the law of God, which is a reference to Scripture, right? We think about it. We meditate on it. We memorize it. We allow for it to influence the way that we see the world around us. And that is the power of God's Word, is that when we incorporate it so much into our life and into our psyche, it becomes the lens by which we see the rest of the world, by how we treat people. And because, and when those promises of God's word become the lens of our life, it is easy to spot the things that are out of alignment with God's word. Now, I'm not saying we never make a bad decision, but we begin to develop this detector that seems out of alignment with the heart of God. Do you know that when federal agents are trained to spot fake money, they're not trained by looking at counterfeits. They are trained by handling the real thing. And the more often you look at the real thing, the easier it is to spot the fake. And if we want to be people who can detect bad advice that comes to us every day from a variety of different sources, then we've got to connect our hearts and our minds to God's word. Psalm 119, verse 105 says, Your word is a lamp to guide my feet and a light for my path. God gave us his word so that we didn't have to depend on the bad advice that comes from everywhere else. Verse 3 tells us what happens when we do that. It says, Then we become, then we are like trees planted along the riverbank, bearing fruit each season. Their leaves never wither, and they prosper in all they do. 
says that when God's word becomes a part of our rhythm, it is a source of life that constantly produces good in season and out of season. It says that our leaves will never wither, that we will always prosper. Now that doesn't mean that we don't go through hard times or that we don't struggle, but it means that even in the struggle, God will give us hope and that God will grow us in those moments. That's what it means to be prosperous in season and out of season, when life is good and when life is hard. God's word is a guide. And there are so many of us wandering through life without direction while simultaneously God has preserved his word so that we could know how to respond to the unique situations that we come to in life. Just this week, I was reading through the book of Chronicles and I was reading about the leadership of King David and it spoke so much into my own experience trying to understand how to leverage and serve people that are part of this community. But that was a 4,000 year old document that still speaks truth to our situation today. And so the more that we attach ourselves to God's word, the more that we can detect, detect the lies in our life. I want to share a story, and I realize that it may be sensitive to some, and so I'm not speaking to your situation. I'm just speaking to my own situation and experience that it was for us. But when my mom was uh, a little bit younger, and she had one child and going through a really unique and difficult season in her life, um, she had an abortion. It was between my brother and myself. And I remember her sharing with sharing this with me as a young man and the pain that I saw her expressing as she tried to help me understand the details of the situation. We have a really open relationship. So she shared it with me. And, and I remember one of the things that stuck with me, she said, she said that after that decision and after that moment in her life, she had this deep sense of regret. And she didn't really understand why that was the case. And she knew that she had tried to make the best decision that she could with the influences that she had in her life, the people who were advising her. But I remember her telling me that after she became a follower of Jesus, she was able to experience some healing and, and forgiveness in response to that trauma. But she says if she had had different people in her life giving her advice, counseling her in that season of life, she doesn't think that she would ever made that decision. But it's a reminder to me, looking back at my own life, and maybe you can look back at moments in your life where we have taken bad advice and it has adversely affected who we are as people. We have hurt because we have not leaned or been connected to the people of God who are committed to the Word of God. And I know that there may be some of us here today that have found ourselves at a crossroads of maybe an important decision in your life. And I wonder what voices you're discerning right now. Because what if it became easier for us to discern the bad advice from the good advice? What if in the middle of a crossroads type of decision, we could have wisdom and confidence in our choices? What if we could have more courage? Scripture tells us that this is literally the byproduct of filling our hearts and our minds with God's truth every single day. That we begin to gain 
a sense of the world through God's eyes. And this week, as we are kind of navigating so many difficult decisions in our life, we need that maybe more now than ever. And so this week, we want to challenge you that if that is not already part of your regular rhythm throughout the course of your day, to slowly begin to take steps to incorporating God's word into your life. And I promise you, it will give you a renewed vision for life. It will give you a renewed vision for the world that you are living in and for the decisions that you are making. And so we want to help you do that. And so this week, we are going to send everybody who fills out a Connect card and writes their email address, lets us know. We're going to send you a simple reading plan to give you a little bit of a head start. I know that it's hard sometimes when we ask ourselves, where do we even start in Scripture? We want to help you do that. And so we're going to do that as a church, send you an email. When it's time to fill in the Connect card, we want to encourage you to do that this morning. But this week... Let's begin making it a point. Those of you who are joining online, those of you who are outside, let's begin incorporating God's word into our mind, into our heart every single day. Every single Sunday, we have people joining the conversation, showing up, trying to decide whose advice they're going to follow. Are we going to follow the advice of the world? Are we going to follow the advice of God's word? People come to this place searching for answers. And many have come searching for the greatest answer of all. What is my purpose? What is the meaning? What is my calling in life? What am I supposed to do with the unique time that I have here on earth? And what scripture repeatedly reminds us of is that we are to follow Jesus. That if we're searching for peace, it'll be in the path of Jesus. If we're searching for hope, it'll be because we follow Jesus. We'll find it when we follow Jesus. If we are searching for significance, it is finding and following Jesus. And this morning, as if you came in searching for that, I want to give you an opportunity to begin that relationship today. If you came in disconnected from God, we want to give you an opportunity to connect with God, perhaps in a way that you never have before. And I promise you, it is not complex. If you're joining online, wherever you are, this is not a complex process. It is simply opening up your heart to receive the gift of salvation that God has offered through His Son, Jesus Christ. And if that's where you're at this morning, I want to encourage you to pray this short prayer in your heart after me, wherever you're viewing this. And so I'm going to ask everyone to go ahead and bow your head and close your eyes. And this, this, if this morning you want to step out of the old and into the new and begin a relationship with Christ, I want you to repeat these words after me in your heart. Dear God, I know that I have followed my own path for so many years. But today I've come into this place and into this conversation asking questions that I haven't been able to find the answers to. And this morning I realize that I need you to fill my heart and to give me hope and to give me satisfaction because I haven't found it anywhere else. And today, 
I receive the gift of salvation. Today I'm choosing to trust that you loved me enough to send your son on the cross to sacrifice his life for my sins. Today I receive you, Jesus, because I want you to change me from the inside out. I want to step out of the old and into the new. I want to experience the abundant life you have for me. God, would you give me the strength to follow you in the days to come? In Jesus' name.